The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. That out to you. Big things for God. Now, now that jumps us into our story here in Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah hears that his city, that he's that the city that he's from, that he's never been to, Jerusalem has been laying in shambles now for 160 years. And he's burdened by that. And he wants to do something about it. And so he goes to the king, and the king gives him uh, permission. He gives him provision. He gives him protection. I can't think of any more ancient words that start with P, but that's what he gives him. And then he gets to the land, and he gets people behind the vision, and the vision gets cast, and people go, let's go. Let's, build, let's rebuild the city. And they all band together. And we looked at how they all split the work up and did all that. And then Rob, last week, if you didn't, weren't here, go back and listen to our podcast or go to our YouTube channel, Crosspoint Temecula, and watch it. Because he did a great job explaining what happens when all of a sudden you have external enemies coming against you. And this thing could have gone off the rails because they, they don't have an army. They have a few people from Persia that are like their bodyguards and stuff. They, they don't know what they're doing here. And yet they pray and they trust God and they also make some plans to say we have to change how we're going to work. And they persevere through it and set up a whole thing in place here to protect them while the the building project goes ahead. And so they face this external opposition that really could have just shut the whole thing down and ended it. And they persevere through it. They're going, yeah. And there's something about that. You guys know like this in business, in your family, when you've got through a big challenge where somebody's attacking you, where it's difficult, and you overcome that thing, and you did it like, bam, let's go! And then we get the surprise attack. On your note sheet, it, it's, it's, it's the surprise attack, because the surprise attack doesn't come from the enemies outside the city and outside Jerusalem and Israel. It comes from within. This divisiveness that springs up. And, and, and see, here's the deal. Sometimes our enemy knows, if I can't stop you externally, I'll let you fools mess the thing up internally. Jesus, man, Jesus talked about that, how, how amazing unity is. Jesus, in John 17, verses 20 to 22, read it on your own sometime. He predicted, he predicted that his church was going to grow, but he went and he prayed for, not the church would grow, and he prayed for, Unity. Because this is going to be a global movement. We're going to have rich people, poor people, smart people, dumb people, Jewish people, Gentile people. We're going to have people from every walk of life. The only way this thing's going to work, and, and the thing that's the multiplying factor in this, will be how these people that are so crazy different can be unified together. It's going to take a miraculous work of God. He prayed for that because he knew this is going to be the game changer. Not their amazing preaching or amazing band, as amazing as we can be here, and we are from time to time anyway. Not our amazing kids ministry, not our amazing youth ministry, not our amazing small groups. He says the thing, the thing that will make the difference in the world for getting people's attention will be unity. Amen. Internal divisiveness will kill unity. Uh, and, and there's a, a kind of a famous verse, verses in Proverbs. I grew up going to church, so we had to learn these verses. I learned when I was a little kid. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, we get God's top seven things that he hates. And on that list are things like dishonesty and murder. But, but don't miss this. At the beginning of it, he says this. At the beginning of these verses, he says, there are six things that God hates. Oh, wait, seventh. And he says, and the seventh is not, I don't hate it. It's an abomination to me. You know what the seventh one is? Not murder, 
Not pride. You know what it is? The one who creates divisiveness. Right alongside murder. He says divisiveness will kill and destroy things. And this is the big threat happening now because of what's going on here. Write this down here. Division is more dangerous than persecution. Because with persecution, you can see the enemy outside. Man, divisiveness, when people get mad about things and get divisive about it, look right at me for a second, because this is probably important for three of you here today to listen to. It doesn't even matter how right your cause is. We're going to get to that in a second. Because Nehemiah is about to get angry about some things. But divisiveness is more dangerous than persecution. And we, what Josh just read for us here in Nehemiah chapter 5 is there was a financial situ- situation going on. Great economic hardship. And I'm going to summarize it real quick for you. There was everybody's working and people that are rich and wealthy have money, have provisions, they're fine. There's a lot of people, they're not working right now. And so how are we getting paid? And yet they're in debt and they've taken out loans for basic provisions. And because uh, it tells us there's a famine, this is not just there's not enough food to eat. In a livestock, agricultural-based society, this is a significant recession is going on. It's terrible right now, and it's impacting the people, the middle class, the poor people, the worst of all. And then, of course, because governors and politicians love to do this, uh, in the midst of high recessions and difficult times, they raise taxes. There we go. The high taxes, not from Israel, Israel's economy, from the king of Persia. The, The king's tax, everybody had to pay him. They had a massive army there, so you had to pay him. And they couldn't pay they couldn't pay the taxes. They, did. they couldn't even get basic necessities. And so they would get loans here to take care of themselves. Now, they're not getting loans for new cars or for new countertops. Not getting loans to go on a great vacation or send their kids away some to some fancy schmancy school. This is for basic provisions. To have a house to live in, to have food to eat, to have basic necessities taken care of. And so because they didn't have the money for this, they take out loans and high interest kinds of loans. And the collateral for those loans from poor people, do poor people have any collateral? They don't have any. Some of you who are poor are going, what's collateral? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Collateral is like, well, how are you going to pay this thing back if you don't have any money? They didn't have any. So you know what the collateral was? Yourself. And you would sell people of your, in your family uh, sell your, even yourself as bond servants. Now, real quick note on this. Bond servants is a very, very different thing than slavery that was practiced even here in America 150 years ago. This is not trafficking of human beings and race-based transatlantic slavery. The biggest difference is this, is that when you couldn't pay for your basic obligations, or you had a loan out or something, and all of a sudden times were tough, you would voluntarily sign a bond, a contract, and you would go to work for that person you owe the money to, and then you would sign that contract, usually for a, a set amount of time, and at the end of that time, be paid off. Now, for some people, things were so bad, they would just, it was a lifelong contract. You were a slave your whole life, and in fact, we know this from studying history, 
that some people, they'd been slaves and their grandparents, and they'd been bond servant slaves their whole life. They were just kind of born into it. Because, look, when you were sold as a slave, a bond servant to this person, they would take care of your family, take care of basic necessities. You didn't get any money, but at least your family was taken care of. And so that was a lot of times how this was happening. And it tells us in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6, I have it highlighted in bold in my Bible. When I heard about this, I was very angry. Not just angry. This is very, very angry. Everybody here have been very angry? Nobody here ever been very angry, right? Very angry. And usually we could have some fun with this, kind of pulling around what the various things that that make us angry, but usually we get angry because somebody's done something to us, said something that's wronged us, hurt us in some way. I have some fun, some fun stuff on this, on, on anger. Take, take a look up here. Anger is a feeling that makes your mouth work faster than your mind. <laughs> some of you go, that explains my first marriage. Anger management. People say everything happens for a reason. So when I punch you in the face, remember, I have a reason. <laughs> Some of you are going, i got to take pictures of these and save these for screenshots. Anger management. Oh, so you think I'm cute and I'm angry? Well, get ready because I'm about to be gorgeous. And then i got a sweatshirt on this one. I uh, have it at home. Anger management. I wouldn't have to manage my anger if people would manage their stupidity. <laughs> yeah, we get angry over things that bother us and hurt us and, uh, and all that. Um, but Nehemiah is not angry over what anybody said or done to him at all. He's angry because of what they're doing to the people and what it's doing to... Hmm. Nehemiah recognizes, I think, that we're doing far more here than just building homes and building a wall and rebuilding the city. We're rebuilding our identity. We're rebuilding a culture here. And this is we can make this massive city. We don't take care of this. This whole thing will fall apart. Proverbs 28, 27, I think it'll be up on the screen, says this, whoever closes their eyes to poverty will be cursed. Proverbs 31, 8, and 9, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. See, he's upset because what's going on. Now, understand something here. The book of Proverbs, we should all read it and get things out of it. You know who the primary audience for Proverbs was back when Solomon put it together? His kids, who were going to become kings someday. Not for middle class people and poor people, for the people at the top of the org church. He says, hey, hey, when you get at the top here, it's easy to exploit those poor people. It's easy to just kind of, whatever. He says, no, your job here as a leader is to help those people. And so Nehemiah is upset about it. And his, he's moved with compassion. And, and sometimes some of us are moved with compassion. We have this kind of, hmm, kind of response. We just, our hearts are moved and, and tears flow. That's not me. When I see stuff like this go on, I kind of can resonate with this Nehemiah. I get angry. My, my first response is, is anger. Uh, and yet Nehemiah, it, it, this is super important here. He says, I was very angry the first four words of chapter 7, you should put stars by, hashtag emojis, tick, make a TikTok on this, TikTok real tomorrow, after thinking it over. He doesn't get angry and go, Pow! 
on people, also known as America today. He says, hey, take some time to think it over. He recognized I have a culture. I have to think this thing through. I'm going to make a bigger mess out of this. And he knows he has to have a difficult conversation with some people. But instead of just exploding in rage, because again, he's not just, it didn't say I was bothered in my spirit about this. I was angry. I was explosive rage is the idea here. There's some verses you're going to look at. On the inside of your program today, there's intersect. If you're in a small group, you should, you should, you, this is the framework for the, the discussion you'll be having. So look these verses up. But even if you're not in a group, look them up because it's a great follow-up study that our team has put together here when it comes to how we deal with anger. Some of us deal with anger with fight. Some of us deal with flight. I was looking at a line from the great uh, modern-day theologian Jack Nicholson in Anger Management. He's talking to Adam Sandler in there. There's two kinds of anger. The kind of intern, the kind of you go to people's grocery store and they're mad because the coupon is stuff, and they all they go crazy in the grocery store. That's the fight one. Then there's the internal stuff it in and just be quiet and whatever. And you do that long and it says, then what you guys do is you come back to the store and shoot everybody. Yeah. He says, so both of them, you got to deal with things here, but um, Proverbs here says, I'm going to summarize these verses. I'm not going to look at them in detail. Proverbs 14, 17 says, people with explosive anger do foolish things. Proverbs 14, 29, people with understanding doesn't say don't get angry. It says they control their anger. And I love Proverbs 19, 11. Sensible people, doesn't say they, they, they never lose their tempers. They control their temple, temper. It doesn't say they don't have one. Proverbs 29, 11, it says fools vent their anger. The wise quietly hold it back. We could do a whole message on that right there. Because we live in an age today where you can text and tweet and post and people can know you're angry. The whole world can know you're angry in about 0.37 seconds. And we're not making things better. In fact, I'm here to tell you, I know I'm seeing people here in different situations you're dealing with. And the thing, and people are, they're all, yeah, we have to do something about this. This is wrong. This, we got to do something about this. And all they're doing is making it worse. Because they're not thinking. They're just reacting out of emotions. Proverbs 29, 20 says, there's more hope for a fool than for someone who speaks without thinking. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 says, control your temper for anger labels you a fool. And here's the hard part in, in where we live today and how we live and work is that when foolishness becomes the majority thing, everybody thinks that's normal. And that's what we have going on right now. A bunch of fools and morons out there just all over the place. And because it's so normal, it's like, hey, we're making a mess out of things here. Uh, write this one down. Even righteous anger should be slow. James 1.19 says, it's the classic verse on anger in the Bible. It says, my brothers and sisters, everyone should be slow to speak, slow to get anger, quick to listen. And we do the exact opposite. We're slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to get angry. It doesn't mean, when it says slow to, to get anger, it doesn't mean you're not slow to feel anger. Because right, can you control feelings of emotion and anger? Sometimes it just get trips of wire there, it's going to come. 
He's not saying be slow to get angry. He's saying slow to express your anger. You can't help how you feel. So never let anybody tell you that the sign of a good godly person is you don't get angry anymore. No, that's a sign of somebody who's probably on something. (laughs) There's some things you ought to get angry about. And Nehemiah is righteously angry here, and yet he takes some time to carefully consider, to carefully think about it. And after he's taken some time to carefully think about it, Verse 7, after thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. And then I called a public meeting to deal with them. <laughs> so I had a quick little private conversation with some of the big leading instigators of this, thinking it through first, not just humiliating them first out there in public. Talk to some guys first, and then a public meeting. At the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who've had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again? How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. That word redeem there is a great word. It's a word that gets used in the Bible all the time about, about how what Jesus did for us, that he redeemed us from our sins. You guys know that's not really a spiritual word. It's a business word. It's, it comes right out of here. Because you, you were free, and then you had to sell yourself into slavery and being a bondservant, and you could redeem yourself out of slavery. The beautiful part about Jesus is, is you can't redeem yourself out of slavery. You're a slave to sin. You're stuck. This is that Christ came and redeemed us. That he paid the penalty and redeemed us out of it again. And this is one of those, if you are a parent, a teacher, a leader of, of any kind, anywhere, from time to time, you have to have a, seriously, dude? Seriously, conversation with some people. This is like ESPN, I love it. They do it on, on their football games here and there. It's the, come on, man. Come on, man, what do you? He said, look, for 160 years, because we were in poverty here, all the rich, educated people got exiled to Babylon. All the poor people got let, they all just sold themselves into slavery just to barely survive. And they just sold themselves, not to their fellow countrymen, because nobody there had any money. They just sold themselves to the foreigners who cruelly oppressed them. He says, and then he got here because he had the king's bankroll behind him and some dollars and cents that, got, that he had got from the king. He says, we got out here and we redeemed those people out of slavery. The foreigners who were victimizing our people and now we're doing this? What are you doing? And he says, they had nothing to say. They got called out. And then I love this. And then I press further. What you're doing isn't right. Should you not walk Make a little note in your Bible. We're going to come back to this one in a bit. In the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations. You see what's happening here? He says, they've been foreigners enslaving us, and they're looking at us going, and you're out here enslaving your own people? We tried to mess you up. You guys are doing a great job messing yourselves up yourself. I myself with my brothers and my workers have been lending the people money and grain, but now let us stop This business of charging interest, this is important for you as a leader. Whether you're a parent, wherever you're a leader of anything, you don't just call out people. Sometimes you're going to go, i got to call some things out. But as I think about this, I've probably been either passively involved in this or maybe even didn't even realize that I was doing some of this kind of same nonsense too because Nehemiah says, we got to stop doing this. And doesn't just call them out. He confesses his own culpability in this. You will gain 
much more influence with people when you can own your part of whatever's going on here. They all of a sudden go, okay, he's not just yelling at us for the dumb things we're doing. He's owning some level of his own responsibility in this. He says, you must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. And then what's beautiful here, what you see happen here, is verse 12 and 13. They replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. And then I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. You know what he just did here? Had an altar call. Got the priest and he says, everybody, we're going to put some music on right here. Get down here. If you're going to sign your name on the bottom, he gets commitment. But he also gets accountability. Write that down. That's the next thing here. Get commitment and establish accountability. He says, I shook out the folds of my robe and said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. What he does here is he gets not just commitment from them, because anybody can commit to something, right? You guys have been enough retreats, conferences. If you grew up going to church, it was like Thursday or Friday night at summer camp. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Anybody can commit to anything. He establishes accountability. Now, accountability is both threat and reward. It always works better if it can be reward. Like, if you do this, look how awesome this is going to be. But from time to time, there do need to be some, some threats, some or else. If you don't do this, bad stuff is going to happen to you. The whole assembly responded, amen, and they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had laid a heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants, the other politicians, took advantage of the people, but because I feared God, mark that in your Bible, I feared God, I did not act that way. Nehemiah says, remember up earlier in verse 9, he said, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you guys have more fear of God? Now, when we hear him talk about fearing God in churches, people often think, well, are we supposed to be afraid of God? And my answer is always, yeah. Like, you know, that big lion at the zoo that sits there and roars behind the glass. If that glass goes down, are you, aren't you a little afraid and terrified? Now, God's our father, but he's not our homeboy daddy. There's a sense of like when dad, there's a sense of what fear means. It's not just, it's not just respect. There is a sense of fear. And some of you are going, well, I don't like that. I think I've, I've never been afraid of God. I just, you know, treat God as my friend and stuff. And I go, God, do we know? We can tell. When you don't have a proper fear of God, it makes a mess out of things. So it's reverence and respect. And, and it, What's interesting, too, about this is that we often see this idea of fearing God is kind of a religious, spiritual word, and it's used in church when we feel fear and reverence and respect for God. Do you see here, this has nothing to do with church and religion right here. He says, look, it's how you handle your money, how you handle your sexuality, how you handle divorce and marriage and remarriage, how you handle everything that you do should be... The, the perspective around there is do I fear God when it comes to these things? 
See, it's going to tell us in, over and over again in the Bible, I didn't even put all the verses down, over and over again it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, you get to fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God. And it says to love God and love God and rejoice with God and all that. So it's all of it uh, together. It, it tells us that fear of man proves to be a snare, but those who trust in the Lord are kept safe. You know why fearing God keeps you safe? Because then you don't do dumb things everybody else is doing. Because you care more about what God thinks than everybody else thinks. Proverbs, I want you to see this one. Proverbs 14, 26. You might want to put Proverbs 14, 26 in the margin here of Nehemiah to go cross-reference it, to look back to this when you read it again. Proverbs 14, 26 says, those who fear the Lord are... Now, isn't that weird? When you think about fearing somebody or something, does that make, is that like a secure thing? Mm, but he says, hey, it's, it's, a, it's a paradox here. You fear the Lord, you're secure. Ah, he'll be a refuge for their children. See, this is the beautiful part about it. Here's what fearing God means. It's not about just mm, feelings and church stuff. It's my everyday life. God, write this down, God and no one else, not even you, has the final word or the final say. That's what it means to fear God. Doesn't matter what the culture says or thinks. Doesn't matter what your coworkers at your work feel or think, what your boss feels or thinks, what people in your small group think. Doesn't matter what I think. Bottom line, what it means to fear God. I heard a guy say it this way one time. When God says jump, we say how high on the way up. And guys, I'm telling you, this is the thing. When you do this, it'll keep you from making dumb mistakes. Because from time to time, I don't know if you've ever experienced this in your life, God's going to tell you to do some dumb things. It's going to feel dumb. Like, this is stupid. Like, like adjust it. Like, tithe and trust God with the money. That's dumb. To forgive that person, to stay in that marriage when that person's a jerk and a tool. I'm telling you right now, it's going to feel so dumb. And God says, are you going to fear me? Are you going to care what your friends think? Are you going to care what everybody else thinks? Are you going to care just what you think and feel? Or do you care what I think and feel? When God says jump, how high? On the way. That's what it means to fear God. And he says when you do that, it'll be both a threat and a reward. It means you don't do dumb things that get you in trouble. And you'll discover that as you do life God's way, and you let him make the call, especially when you go, I hate this right now. And you watch him come through and you do the countercultural thing, the counterintuitive thing. You go, dang, it just works, man. It just, it just works. Nehemiah said he feared God. And then back here in Nehemiah, um, it says here he was a, a leader, verse 16. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. And I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table besides all the visitors from other lands. The provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry, also known as your Super Bowl party tomorrow. Um, and every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine, even more so. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. You see what has does here? How fearing God and looking around, look, God says, hey, look out for the poor people. Look out. And guys, this is not how it was done back then. When you got to a place 
of rising to the top, you grab for all the perks and privilege you, could, you should get. And remember it says the, go- the governor had a daily food allowance? He could tax the people I want. And because he has the world superpower army behind him, he could do whatever he wants. All- he could leverage this position for his own personal net worth and leverage himself for generations to come for his family. He says, I didn't do it because I feared God. He didn't uh, go out there and try to grab everything. In Matthew 20, verses 25 to 27, I love this. Matthew 20, 25 to 27. It says this, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. You know what that means? They just press people and they know they have the power and authority behind them to get whatever they want, to exploit the people that they're, they're leading. But he says, and that's what everybody does. That's, the, that's, that's, the, that's just taken for granted. Of course that happens. But among you, it'll be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. Jesus, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be at the top of the org chart. And don't miss this. There's all kinds of books being written right now in the business world about this idea of servant leadership. A lot of these are written by Christians, and they're great books. But you know that uh, Jesus never called you to be a servant leader? You know what he called you to be? Servant's not an adjective. Servant's a noun. He's called you to be a servant. In, in Mark 10, 45, he says, Look, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So here's what I want to tell you. When it comes to this, write this down. Great leaders give up. They don't grab the perks and privileges. And I'm telling you, the higher you rise up in your family, in your job workplace, when you're at the, at the top of a, of a department, top of a division, or when you're the, the top, you get all the perks and privileges. I want to tell you one of the great exercises that I've tried to learn to put into practice here uh, even being sort of at the top of the org chart here at Crosspoint, is to intentionally, from time to time, take something that is just everybody takes for granted as yours, or that somebody else does, and that, that that's what they get paid to do, and instead do that myself. And I do it to keep myself humble to go look. I want to be the kind of leader that could be, that we that, that Nehemiah does here. So like, I, I, it's expected that I should just get all this stuff. People just serve me and help me and give it to me. He says. Look, don't grab for it. Intentionally give them up. And I encourage you, find some ways if you're leading anything with your kids, with your spouse, with your coworkers, people like that. Find some simple ways as a spiritual practice and discipline to give up some of those things. And go do somebody else's work. And I'm not saying do their job for them because they're lazy. That, that's terrible. That's not going to help them at all. But from time to time, go help somebody else out. Go do something for somebody else. And even if it doesn't make a big difference for them, it'll be good for your soul. It'll keep you, keep you humble. And the, and the best, le- Jesus tells us, look, don't lord it over people, but become a servant of all. He doesn't just tell us to do it. He actually does it. Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians, uh, that's a letter to uh, the city of Philippi. Paul's talking about to to a church that's got some division in it here and there. Some people are just squabbling and uh, there's divisiveness going on. 
And he tells them, hey, in verse, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress each other. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. That right there is counter everything your children are being told, what your advertising is going to tell you tomorrow at all the Super Bowl games. You're never saying anything's better than yourself. You think, you think you're better than everybody else because you're a snowflake, unicorn, champion, skittle, whatever you are. He says, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus is the best example of this for us. So the next time you are about something, breathe and think it over. Breathe for a bit and think it over. Don't just go impulsively out there and act. And then we see some examples here of what it means, what it means to walk in the fear of God not just in our church life, but in our everyday life. And what it means to be the kind of people that don't demand the perks and privileges. Instead, we give them all up willingly for the good of others. The band's going to come up right now. Give you guys a chance to respond to some of this in different ways today. Some of this will be you'll respond by uh, singing together. We're going to sing some great songs uh, together. Uh, Our prayer team is at the back of the house. And if you need prayer about anything today, maybe you have some some challenges going on in your life, you're not quite sure where to go, what to do, they will not sit back there with you today and tell you the four things you should do. What they're going to do is just simply talk to God out loud about that thing that you need help with and just talk to Jesus about it for a, a couple of minutes back there. So sing, pray, Maybe even sit here today. Maybe I think there's probably some of us that need to think through some of those areas where we're so right now. And let the Spirit of God just do some work internally on your heart. And then when you feel, I don't know, moved, ready, inspired, we have communion that we offer every single week here at Crosspoint. And and communion is just simply, it's bread and juice that symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus. That That song that's in Philippians recorded there for us. He was God, becomes a real human being so that he could redeem us out of our slavery to sin. And he does that because he loves us. And so every, just about every week that we're here, we take a moment to give you a chance to remember Jesus. And and, some of us have had some bad examples of leadership in our life from a boss a teacher, in some cases our parents. I mean, our parents, believe it or not, are real human beings. They probably jacked you up. At some level, all of our parents did something to us. <laughs> and yet you go, look, it's not about how great your parents led you or your boss or your teacher or whatever they said or did to you. You've got a God who
who loved you so much that he took on real flesh, let real blood flow, flow through his veins so we could lay that life down on a cross for you and give you an example, Peter says, that we would follow in his steps. And so Jesus, today, go whatever needs to land in our hearts today, drive that, countersink that, drill that down deep. God, my prayer today as we move beyond just inspiration and to application into our everyday lives and what it means to look like to fear you, to, to be the kind of people that give up privileges and perks, people, be the kind of people that deal with our anger in a way that doesn't make a bigger mess, that makes things more beautiful and more amazing. So just help us with all that today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.